0: That's D R S V O B O D A. Hello, and welcome to the Living with Reality podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, your host and Dr. Svoboda's media manager. On this episode, we are sharing a conversation that I actually had with Dr. Svoboda on my podcast, which is called Weave Your Bliss, where we went into a lot of topics he doesn't always get to talk about, like How cool Sanskrit is and why he thinks that. Um, We talk about his story and his journey to finding Ayurveda and what he found so remarkable about it. Um, We also talk about the eighth house in astrology because he specifically has some things going on with his eighth house, which we talk about, and how to transform the energy of that house, which is a very difficult house for a lot of people. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this, these are the kinds of conversations that I like to have on my podcast. So please check it out and subscribe. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Svoboda, he has a number of courses, which you can take if you go to drsvoboda.teachable.com. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A.teachable.com. And you can see he has courses on so many of the Indian sciences and a lot of the things that we're talking about in this conversation. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Dr. Robert Sabota. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm so glad you could be here. As listeners may know, Dr. Sabota is a teacher of mine, a mentor and a friend. Um, So I know a little bit about your journey, but I'm Curious for my listeners who may not be as familiar, can you talk a little bit about your journey with Ayurveda? Because you were planning to go to medical school, but then you ended up being the first Westerner to get an Ayurvedic medical degree in India.
1: Well, I only learned about Ayurveda first once I got to Nepal. And I got to Nepal, I'll start I'll start when I am have. Uh, I'm just about to turn nineteen. I'm still eighteen. I'm eighteen. I uh, and by virtue of the fact that I can uh, read books really well and take tests very well, I have graduated from college, University of Oklahoma, and I don't know what to do with myself, but. I've always been intrigued by the human body and medicine, and I've had when I was young, I had various health challenges, none too terribly serious, fortunately, but enough to make me interested in how they came and and how they uh, disappeared and so I applied to a few medical schools and got accepted by one and I was about to prepare myself. I was preparing myself to, to start medical school in September of 1973. And before that, I decided that what I would like to do is go someplace really exotic, because I already knew that I liked to travel. And I knew that I was going to be in a laboratory and a hospital for the next 10 years. So I thought, I will go to someplace exotic. And back at that time, Africa seemed really exotic, 1973. And so I flew to Spain, crossed over, went to Africa, crossed Africa, Africa overland from the, East Co- the West Coast to the East Coast, and then was fortunate to be selected to participate in an ethnographic expedition and then was invited to join the Pokot tribe and joined the Pokot tribe. And all of this was very exciting. And I knew I couldn't go back to the U.S. just yet. So I got permission to postpone entering medical school for a year. And then I flew back to England and then I crossed overland to India and then spent three months in Nepal, and that's where I heard about Ayurveda first. I heard about it from the Peace Corps doctor there. And I had already started to think about alternatives to Western medicine when I was traveling. Because when I was in Mali, about to cross the border into Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, I got food, uh, I, I ate some food that was contaminated with parasites, with Giardia. And I was fortunate to be treated by someone that I was, was introduced to me as a witch doctor. He was a very nice young uh, e- uh Ivoirian man probably in his thirties. He was a bank clerk during the week and on the mm-hmm. weekend he was an apprentice he- healer and, uh, and shaman. And, um, and I, uh, there are two young Frenchmen who owned a bookstore in Abidjan, the capital of Ivory coast were kind enough to put me up in their flat because, um, I was not feeling well. And they were going to what they described as a witch doctor convention that weekend with this young man. <laughs> and so they brought him over to take a look at me uh, before they went. And he, w- just very, very very quiet, very matter of fact, and uh, he, he had a certain air about him that inspired confidence, I have to, uh, I have to report, because all he did was look in a glass of water and mumble some words over the water and then hand it to me to drink. I drank it shortly thereafter. I fell asleep, and when I woke up, I was 90% better. Um, It didn't solve the problem completely, but from being very unwell to being mostly well was a dramatic change. And I... Was very impressed because I certainly at that time had never seen anyone simply mumble some words over a glass of water and hand it to someone else and have an effect happen. Later I saw my mentor <clears throat> Vimalananda do that many times. But at that time, it was something very impressive. And I I thought to myself, there there is something to this. And I don't know what it is, but I have to find out more about it. And while I was with the Poko tribe, I met some of their healers, and they showed me some of the plants that they used and how they used them and and it became i I had no no idea. I had no clue that there were there that there, there were alternatives, there were other ways of working with health and disease than the way that I had been brought up with, which was conventional Western medicine. So I was interested, I was already very interested in in studying something different from what everyone else was studying. And then I heard about Ayurveda and that seemed like something particularly interesting.
0: What is it about Ayurveda that inspired you when you first encountered it?
1: I, I think the, the main thing was that uh, what I had experienced with that young man in Ivory Coast and what I experienced with the healers in Kenya was very interesting. But it was, of course, it was a very, it, it was not particularly systematic. Each, each one of them had, had gained certain knowledge mostly from being taught by their own teachers some they may have picked up on their own from somewhere but ayurveda struck me as being extra interesting because it was systematized and it was not just the experiences of of one family or one lineage or or one way of looking at things but it was the it it, it took a number of different ways of looking at things and and it had already existed for several thousand years, and it seemed to me that if, in fact, it still was, it was not just um, superstition, but actually had some some value, some practical value as a healing modality. That that would be very interesting to study, um, and. I, I really had no idea of how I was going to study it. But conveniently for me, I ended up in, in Bombay and I literally met some people on the street who introduced me to other people, who introduced me to the most eminent Ayurvedic physician uh, in India at that time, Pandit Sharma, who arranged to have me admitted to an Ayurvedic college in Pune that was teaching in the English medium. So I had to learn Sanskrit, but I was studying in English also. So I I heard about Ayurveda in December. I was exposed to some, an Ayurvedic doctor or two in India in January And by February, I had flown back to the U.S. to get a visa to study in India.
0: It's truly amazing how much serendipity, like he's, I've heard the story before, so I can tell my listeners that there's so much magical serendipity that sort of opened these doors for you. And so I'm wondering what you make of that in light of like living in your purpose that there's some coordination when we kind of align with what we're supposed to be doing or um like what would you say about that
1: well uh, personally i have i have to think that there was something that it was it that it was very much required for me to 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 end up at this ayurvedic college particular for two reasons number one i mean literally i met this couple and their son outside a restaurant they sent me downstairs uh, i visited them the next day at their in their apartment their f- uh, flat and they sent me downstairs and i met the people down there and they introduced me to pandit shiv sharma and just conveniently at that moment ayurveda was being taught in english at that college and that was the only Time they were teaching it, the only year they taught, I mean, the only batch we finished, uh, the six of us who were studying in English, we were able to continue studying. But after that, no one else was, was being taught in English. And just being admitted into an Ayurvedic college, my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Claudia Welch, spent an entire year once in India in the Uh, late 80s or early 90s trying to get into an Ayurvedic college and failing to do so. So just the very fact that I showed up and all of a sudden I I was admitted in this Ayurvedic college to me suggested that, for better or for worse, that's where I needed to be at that moment. And so I, having been traveling all this time and having been following my nose and, 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 and finding out where I was going to end up, uh, it, it certainly seemed to me like this was the right choice for me at that moment.
0: So what does it mean to you to live in your purpose in light of that? And maybe you can talk a little bit about dharma, what it is, what it actually means to live in your dharma.
1: That's something that I've thought about quite a bit over in, in my life. I'm 68 now, so I've plenty of time to th- have. I've had plenty of time to think about it, especially since I first heard about Dharma, maybe when I was 20 or 21. And I think that it's easier to, for me, to think about Dharma as I, I like to just. Think about it in terms of nowadays. In terms of prana, prana is the life force, and many people try to define dharma as as religion or as your career or uh, as as something else. Defining it as something something in terms of your the external way that your uh, life is organized, whereas I think it's more important more important to understand that the word dharma comes from a Sanskrit root that means uh, a a steadiness, stability, a foundation for things. And so the, the dharma, your dharma means when you are aligned with that perspective on life that is, that is going to promote stability in your life. The, the concept of dharma for me is, that, that, is that, that pattern of behavior, that attitude towards life, that perspective on life, that is going to not only make you as a person well-established in yourself, swasta, which is one of the Sanskrit words that means healthy, but also, that is going to encourage the actions that you perform in the world to have a beneficial effect on others, also. So, it's often I think people focus on Dutterman in the context of themselves because this is a we live in a world in which it's all about me, everything is all about me, and if Anything is about you, it's only about you in the context of how you relate to me. This is the way people think. But dharma does, is is not at all a matter just of who you are and what your personal path in the world should be. It's how does that personal path, your personal path, how does that interact, how does that intersect with, how does that complement or 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 conflict with, the personal paths of other people, the paths that that countries or professions or uh, other categories or classes of of, of beings or, uh, need to follow, and how do all these? How can all of these different paths be aligned in such a way that they are they are? that they're all moving forward in as harmonious a way as possible. So that's also an important aspect of of dharma. Um, So when I think about dharma and myself, I try to think about prana because I've found that it's very important for anyone who wants to be healthy to align themselves well with their prana and with prana as it exists in their environment so uh, aligning yourself with the directions aligning yourself with the conditions around you aligning yourself with other people and what you eat and what you're reading and what you are how you're interacting with the world all these trying to trying to align yourself in such a way that you are respecting the life force in yourself you're facilitating its action as best you can in yourself and facilitating the 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 facilitating that whatever harmony and whatever sort of 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 resonance of prana that you can create in yourself to have that resonance attempt to expand itself extend itself to 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 other beings to other aspects of the environment around you because the y- 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 although many people try very hard to ignore their external environments. The fact is that each one of us is a creation of, a co-creation of our own karmas and of the environments in which we find ourselves.
0: And dharma is not necessarily always comfortable or fun. Like I'm thinking of Arjuna, you know, (laughs) having to kill his guru in the Mahabharata, so.
1: Dharma is very definitely not always fun. And uh, Arjuna had to kill his guru, and the the five Pandavas had to kill Bhishma, who was regarded as pretty much everyone's grandfather. So it was very the Mahabharata was very much all about how how there are different different ways of looking at Dharma, and some people resolutely look at things one way and other people resolutely look at it the other way. And often this can cause conflict. And then you have to be, you have to, you have to identify what it is you need to do and do it. However difficult that may be.
0: And like if you were to tell somebody, I know I'm going to ask the hard question, but how do you figure that out for yourself? What would you tell them?
1: You, First of all remain calm. <laughs> you breathe. And you try not to use your head too much and you're trying not even to use your heart too much. Both of those you need to need to be need to be aligned in whatever it is you're doing, but really it's it's better to start out by connecting your attention down to your Manipura, your Hara point down just below your navel. That's the center of the, your, the, the body, the physical body's center of gravity. It's also the place where the navel, that's where you were getting your prana when you were a fetus, when you were in the womb for nine months. That's where you were getting your prana for, from. So your entire body still relates to that area as in in a certain way as the is the source of the prana that's there so if you if you start paying attention to that area then it starts to be easier to connect to the prana in yourself and in the world around you and then you become more able to rely on your organism to tell you whether you're moving in the right way or not. My uh, uh, friend, uh, Mr. Robert Moses, who's, one of, who's the co-publisher, along with Eddie Stern of Nama Rupa, uh, once took a workshop with a man named Tom Brown Jr., who's a well-known tracker, And at the end of the workshop, the final exam was performed one night, at uh, late at night, let's just say midnight. And everyone was was blindfolded and taken a mile away from the camp. They were in a forest. And there they were. It was in the middle of the night. It was dark. They were blindfolded. And... In the camp, a bell was sounded once every one minute or five minutes or something like that. And their job was to, blindfolded, get back to the camp. And so Robert reported, and I, I think this was probably the experience of everyone else, they all got back to the camp. But he reported that at first he was, he was thinking And he was thinking, how am I possibly going to do this? In the dark, I could run into anything. I could fall into anything. And then after a few moments, he realized that what he had to do was let his body start to sense what was going on and let his body get aligned with the environment. And as he did that, he started to find that it was much easier to move through the forest back in the direction of the bell and he got there and this is very similar to what people have to do in their own lives we're we're headed first of all you need to have some idea of where you want to head and if you have faith in 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 something in reality or in the mind or in consciousness or in in anything in a rock in a mountain what, ganesha in ganesha if you have faith in something then that that is the thing that you can rely on as your as your magnetic north pole that's the thing that your compass can always go back to and once you have something that you know you have faith in then you can keep aligning yourself with that thing and keep asking yourself is what I am doing in alignment with my alignment with whatever it is I have faith in, and as long as you as as you 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 stay more or less in alignment with that, inevitably you're going to make some mistakes. Inevitably, you're going to go off track, but as long as you keep trying to calm your mind and calm your heart, that you will get you will. You will get messages. You will get mo- You will be. You will be shifted in the direction that is the right direction for you to go in. Particularly if you try to keep the the more you keep your mind out of it, the better it is because your mind will grab hold of it and it will say, "Oh, this is my dharma. I have now seen what my dharma is, and now I'm going to start calculating my dharma. I'm going to." Con- exchange my dharma, I'm going to compare it with other people's dharma, and then all of a sudden, your attention is going in several different directions, and now it's not at all about actually following your dharma. Now it's all about following your concept of what you think your dharma is, which inevitably is not going to be your dharma, and that's not going to work out very well for you.
0: Oh, <laughs> um. <laughs> Um, so how does divination, and specifically Jyotisha, since we're both lovers of Indian astrology, how does that fit into figuring things out or helping you on that path as you're finding your guidepost?
1: The word divination, of course, comes from the word divine, but it really comes from a word that means to shine, a root that means to shine. And divination is one of the techniques that one can use when one is trying to trying to discern things that are not obvious on the surface. And in particular, when you're trying to get a, a general idea of how you may want to move forward in a particular context in your life. And sometimes your intuition will give you perfect information and that will be great. And sometimes it, the situation, the details of the situation may make it difficult f- for your intuition, to your, your, your raw intuition, to to be able to identify exactly what the right perspective and direction is. Then, in a context like that, if you employ some method of divination, that can, by working with an even deeper part of your awareness, that can assist you to clear up whatever confusion may be present in your Intuition, and so Jyotisha is a very it is one of of many 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 possible systems of divination, and people humans have used all kinds of unusual systems of divination. Jyotish is particularly interested in the 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 movement of heavenly bodies, which we think of as astrology and also of, uh, is very interested in palmistry and very interested in physiognomy, samudrika lakshana. And it, it, it's it, it, a, a horoscope from, from the perspective of Jyotisha is regarded as being a snapshot of the karmas that you brought with you into this lifetime to experience. And it is, of course, only a snapshot. It is, of course, of the moment that you were born and you have been performing other karmas thereafter that may have altered that somewhat. So we address that by doing what's called a prashna, a horary chart of the moment that a reading is done. So then you see how things were for you at the time you were born. You see how things are for you at the time that you were, that, that the question, whatever question it is, when that question is asked. And then you can see how the patterns of the flow of the karmas and therefore the activation of different aspects of your life have been going on and this hopefully gives you some perspective on the kinds of directions you should be may, may, uh, moving into uh, the, and the, the questions you should be asking in order to get answers that will assist you to move forward. I'm
0: really curious because one of the things that when I first met you, and I have seen this over time, whenever you get some intense news or something, you're always so calm. And one of your phrases is please remain calm. <laughs> and in light of the fact that like you have an emphasis on the eighth house in your own chart, You've worked. Through, you mentioned childhood illness, obviously you're a healer. That's very eighth house kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about like from this perspective now being in your sixties, working with that energy and, um, What's been helpful?
1: The eighth house, I th- I think pretty much anyone would agree who has studied astrology. The eighth house is the most challenging house of the horoscope. It is the house, and and I think it's very good to remember that astrology is based in astronomy. So it is, it's, it's, the, the eighth house represents an area in the sky where a planet is heading towards setting. And when a planet sets, you can't see it anymore. It's as if it is dead. So the eighth house is, is not quite at the point where it is ready to make a dramatic departure. That would be dramatic. It's at the point where it's moving towards that direction, but it hasn't got there yet. So the eighth house represents all sorts of things that are ongoing that are challenging in some way. And for many people, this is literally uh, challenging, like chronic disease and ongoing litigation and the... Hmm?
0: And, death. <laughs> and
1: death, and death, uh, and uh, destruction of or of organizations or of structures in one's life, or destruction of one's reputation, or just in general things that are, but also that that do not necessarily simply. Um, Appear and 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 find a resolution quickly. The eighth house also does not promote quick resolution. So, having had a strong eighth house influence and one that has persisted, and of course, growing up not having any clue about it, mm-hmm. it it was. Um, I I the eighth house also relates to everything. that that is very difficult, if not impossible, for human beings to think their way through, to rationalize. So it's energies that are beyond human comprehension, nuclear energy, um, things that happen inside giant uh, chemical plants and reaction vessels and, and extreme the insides of stars and intense sexual energy and and being possessed by other entities and all, all and and spirits and all kinds of things that are just beyond standard human experience and so uh, When I was growing up, I had a limited way of understanding this. The other thing that the the, one of the the two things that the eighth house is good for, one is um, inheriting things. Of course, inheritance means that somebody has to die. So it's not exactly like um, I won the lottery and that's great. It's like aunt so-and-so passed on and left you some money but that means I have the money because Aunt so-and-so is not there anymore. The The really good thing about the eighth house is it relates to ancient wisdom. Ancient wisdom mean things that have come from the far past that we can't actually know very well, but at least we can get some perspective on. That's, that's that eighth house aspect of not really being able to comprehend it because it's so far in the past. So once I did start to understand the value of ancient wisdom. And I i have to say, I have been extremely fortunate in so many ways in my lifetime, but particularly because when I was in the sixth grade, we moved to Louisiana, and I was fortunate to attend the Governor's program for gifted children for four summers in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Lake Charles, which unfortunately is in very busted-up shape, because down here on the Gulf Coast um, we do get hurricanes all the time. And last year, Lake Charles got two. Fortunately, um, when I was going to the to to Lake Charles back, um, this would have been sixty years ago almost. Um it was it was a completely eye opening experience because we were talking about we were reading ancient Greek plays Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus and we were were and and I heard the word sanskrit first from Dr. Gerard, who was one of the classicists there at the um college and and my eyes were opened to the fact that that there is still a great deal of value in this ancient wisdom and and i immediately took off in that direction and and that i think really positioned me to be able to take advantage of of, of the opportunity to study Ayurveda when it was put into my lap because I already had this, this appreciation for the value for the eighth house, ha- I mean, the uh, appreciation for ancient wisdom that I'm not sure I would have had had I not had such strong influence of the eighth house in my own horoscope. And
0: the eighth house is also about tantra and, you know, doing rituals and, mantras and things like that. And you just mentioned Sanskrit. So, you know, I know you're a lover of words and etymology. So can you talk a little bit about what you love about Sanskrit? What's unique about it?
1: There are a few things that are unique about it. One is that it, it, it and there's two main, it's important. I think it's important that when we talk about Sanskrit, we're actually talking about two different languages One is Vedic Sanskrit, which the Vedas are written in, and which is not at all easy to understand if you have only been tutored in classical Sanskrit, like me. And the other is classical Sanskrit. There was a complete reorganization of the language about 3,000, 2,500 years ago. And of the three grammarians who reorganized the language, the one who is best known, his name was Parnini. And Parnini, kind of like the, I mean, his name is very much like the uh, Italian bread, Parnini. It's pronounced slightly different. But he is, is said to have been a worshiper of Lord Shiva and that after worshiping Shiva for long enough, Shiva appeared and with his damaru, his two-headed drum, created certain sound patterns on which Panini has based his entire grammar. In fact, the grammar is simply an, an unfolding of those fourteen sutras. They're called the Maheshvarani Sutrani. And so that's one unique thing. This this grammar that is that the basis of which is just is this extremely compact method of providing information that then gets unpacked and and, and creates this entire grammar for this language. Number one. Number two, Sanskrit is a language in which you can put different words together and create new words. Now, other languages can do this, but Sanskrit is a language in which you can create words. Maybe you could have one word that goes on for one entire page. That's not really a very useful word. And the people who, the, 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 the writers who wrote words like that were doing it just to show off, but the point is very much that a, a words need not be these very small, independent things that are always independent of one another. They can be they can be very malleable. They can be added to. They can be subtracted from. There's several different classes of compound words in Sanskrit. And a third thing that is quite impressive to me about Sanskrit is that a single word can have many different meanings according to context and according to the subject that you are speaking about. So the, the word yoga, for example, the word yoga comes from the Sanskrit root yuj, which means to yoke. Y-O-K-E. So if you have two oxen plowing a field, there is a big, usually wooden thing over their shoulders that connects them together. So they will have to plow in the same direction, more or less in the same pace. And that big thing is called a yoke. So a yoga literally means a yoking together of two things so that they have to cooperate together in some way. In Ayurveda, a yoga is a combination of herbs and minerals, sometimes animal products, that are combined together in a particular way to be employed as a remedy of some kind, a therapeutic substance. In Jyotisha, a yoga is a combination of two grahas two planets or of a graha in a house or of a nakshatra in a day or it's it's a it's a yoking together of two different astrological factors that produce a result that you might not necessarily have expected just from each individual factor and of course yoga Today, even though many people have the are practice, the, they call what they practice yoga, even though it is far away from what yoga, what someone a hundred years ago would in India have recognized as yoga. The reality is that yoga is all about connecting yourself, yoking your own body, mind, and spirit in a particular way. Yoking it to prana, yoking it to consciousness, yoking it to to breath in such a way that you can align yourself more correctly, more rightly, more beneficially to reality and to prana. So just that one word is a very, it's a small word, but it's a very meaningful word. And it has very different meanings according to the context in which you put it. So, uh, and the fourth thing, of course, is very much that Sanskrit is meant to be pronounced very specifically. And when you pronounce it specifically, and you chant it or you sing it, then it is very beautiful. And it it commonly has a mantric effect. It has an effect of creating a resonance in your own awareness that can influence your neurology in a positive, and, a, a positive way, a way that will encourage greater coherence in your awareness.
0: You totally answered my next question, which was, what is happening when we chant a mantra? So thank you for that. Um, and you and I both love to sing, you know, so... Maybe you could just talk briefly about how music impacts us and how it helps us.
1: Many people think that music was created before speech appeared. And, of course, that would not be a that that would not be unexpected because there are after all so many forms of music that exist in the world we have we have birds that are always whistling and singing and and reacting to their environments and we have sounds from various other animals and and we have sounds from the natural environment and none of these sounds are word based all of them are are meaningful to whoever it is 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 creating the sound but not all of them are are meant specifically to convey particular meaning sometimes they even they the the, the meaning is contained just in the expression of joy or misery or or intent, or whatever it is that's being created. So in my opinion, it's very likely, in fact, that humans started to imitate these other sounds, and then they started to find that they could do other things with their voices and with clacking two pieces of wood or two rocks or something else together. And then rhythm is something that everybody is exposed to from the womb. There you are in the uterus and your mother's heart is beating. For nine months, you hear the mother's heart beating. And that rhythm is then starts to be complemented by the beating of your own heart after it starts to beat. And so rhythm, it's, it's, life is very much, uh, uh, for human beings, Life is very much a manifestation of, of the experience of awareness in the context of rhythm. And this is, I think, one reason why Shiva is regarded as being the, the parent, the father of rhythm, why he has that damaru, because, and why he is the lord of death also, because only as long as that rhythm is going on are we alive. Once that rhythm stops, that that's the end for us. So we had rhythm, we hear we hear melody out there and it's it seems just natural that song should be the result. I had a good friend who was originally from Switzerland but lived as a sadhu in India for 60 years or maybe a bit more. And he liked to say that from from the karmic point of view you pay for every word that you speak because traditionally thought, word, and deed are regarded as being um, m- part of, of the, 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 the karmic process. Anything you think is also a karma, much less what you say or what you do. But singing is quite different from talking. It's a different way of communicating. It's a different way of interacting with the environment also. Talking is something that only is meaningful to human beings. Singing, and I've seen this myself many times, if you were singing in a particular way, often the frogs or the insects or somebody else in the environment will start aligning with your rhythm, sometimes even aligning with your pitch uh, because it's just natural. It's part of the way that things happen out there in the environment. So, so he used to say, you pay for every word that you speak, but singing is free because if you're really singing and you're singing with your heart, then you are, you're, you're, you're reconnecting to that source of life—that's part that that from which we all have emerged.
0: So, um, I'd love to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Are you open to that? Sure. Okay. The first one is: What is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life?
1: It's hard to come up with just one because I've had many. Let me let me say two. Number one is Vimala advice. It's always good to live with reality because if you don't, you can be sure that one day or another, reality will come and live with you. And the other was my mother's advice. No matter how bad things are, things can always be worse. And it's always good to be thankful that things are not any worse.
0: (laughs) So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing that you do to ground yourself?
1: Anxious, confused, or frustrated, the first thing that I do is stop whatever it is I'm doing and start to connect connect myself as best I can, first down to my, the, my, the horror point, the pit of my stomach, and then down to the center of the earth while I'm breathing as quietly as I can. And then waiting there as long as I have to in order to let things calm down.
0: What is your favorite hot beverage? I have a feeling I know, but maybe you'll surprise me.
1: <laughs> I I would have to say that my favorite hot beverage is probably coffee. Nowadays, I only drink, or, or on a daily basis, I drink decaf. I still occasionally drink coffee with caffeine, but I like the Flavor of coffee mixed with fat.
0: What would your last meal on earth be?
1: That's a good question. I think it would have to be coconut soup, kind of the Tom Ka variety. And there would be Alfonso mangoes. We call them (laughs) hapus in Bombay. They're grown in the Konkan, the south of Bombay. And um, I think I'd probably want some blueberries and an artichoke.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) little variety there. Yeah. Um, So can you tell us uh, about your morning routine? What what part, if any, is non-negotiable?
1: The only non-negotiable part is the first 10 or 15 minutes when I get up in the morning. Um, I drink some water. And I just, I remain where I am. I, fo- I focus on just being where I am, and I ask, I tell myself the three things that Vimalananda used to say to himself every morning, which is, "I'm alive. Thank you very much for letting me live one more day." But at the same time, I am definitely going to die, and that could be today. So during today, my prayer to you you meaning the the providence or nature or whatever you want to call you my prayer is that you assist me to align with reality as best as possible and 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 when i am trying to listen to what my conscience is telling me to listen carefully and not to cheat myself by trying to ignore it Hmm. Can you tell
0: us that? Oh, sorry. Well,
1: no, uh, I mean, so that, that's, that's the only really, um, non-negotiable part because otherwise I like to get up and uh, spend a little bit of time, um, chanting and do some yoga and do a little meditation and do a little bit of some kind of exercise, often walking, sometimes other things. But the 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 part that's not negotiable is take that first 10 or 15 minutes where I just am trying to realign myself with what's going to happen during the day.
0: So tell us about a person who inspires you and why.
1: That... That's a difficult question. Also, um, I think it's difficult because many people I find inspirational. Um, I, I would have to say, at the moment, if it, the the person the the name I, I'm probably the person who has inspired me the most in my lifetime has been Vimalananda. And second to him, his guru, Jatul Sadhu Ranvaswambadas, Guru Maharaj. And there have been many other people, but if, I would have to say that at the moment, the, the person who, well, the two people. Number one is Abraham Lincoln, a man who, once he became president, he understood that it was his dharma to keep the union together whatever that meant. And of course, like everyone else, all human beings, he made mistakes. But he kept going and he kept, he refused to act until he was sure that what he was doing was the right thing to do. So he was a man who worked very hard to follow his dharma and, and did so and paid the price for it. And the other person that comes to mind right at the moment is Nelson Mandela, a man who had a very clear concept of what he needed to be doing, and despite the fact of being imprisoned for 25 years, when he got out, refused to be bitter, refused to be revengeful, insisted instead on finding a way to assist South Africa to make that transition from from what it could no longer be until mm-hmm. what it is now has the potential to become so both of both of these men were heads of state and I, I have never had the ambition to be a head of state but I think it's particularly important when you are when you've taken upon yourself to be a head of state that you have a very clear perspective, whether you know the word Dharma or not, that you have a really clear perspective on what's on the fact that you are now responsible, not just for yourself, you're responsible for everyone in the country that you are the ruler of. And it, this, even if you're not a head of state, you, you. There's the responsibility that each one of us has for anyone who looks up to us in any way, to try to live in such a way that we will act as good examples for those those people who are around us. I think uh, I I think about this quite a bit. I'm fortunate to have um to have always had a number of. Uh, children in my life, and I, even today, I'm I, I regularly interact with with young children, in particular a couple of them who are age five and age ten. And it's every time I'm tempted to fall into some sort of pattern, I think to myself, especially when I'm around them, I need to provide an example that will be. As potentially memorable to them as so many examples were memorable to me when I was that age, I think many adults forget just how much they were influenced by by adults when they were children, and they forget what or, how much of a responsibility it is to to provide a good example to. The children of today and for that matter to everyone else to provide a a good example for everyone who is trying to trying to find their way through this extraordinarily bizarre period of time that we as a planet um are living through
0: thank you for that and also for our listeners if you haven't read a long walk to freedom which is nelson mandela's book i highly recommend it (laughs) especially if you're afflicted by saturn it's a very good book to read and to see how somebody transmutes the difficulties that they face in, into um, you know, a life of satisfaction. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, and something people might not know about you and now maybe they have realized that you're a history buff.
1: <laughs> um, people may not know about me. Um, gosh, that's a good question. They may not know a lot of things about me. <laughs> um, I like to I like to bowl.
0: Really, I didn't even know that. <laughs>
1: there we are. <laughs> I I only do it once every uh, year or so. But um, I w- when I was in grade school, I was even in a league. So I've I was never very good, but I enjoyed it. I mean, my high score is two twenty one or something like that.
0: That's funny. I love that. So what are you reading right now? There's always a couple books on your bookshelf, so I have a feeling there's going to be more than one. At
1: at the moment, I'm reading three books. And the the number one book is The Burning. It's a story of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. It's by a reporter from the Fort Worth newspaper, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And it is providing, I mean, I, despite having graduated from high school in Tulsa, I, like most of the people in Tulsa, had no idea about this until a few years ago. And this provides a lot of other very unusual information that I, that, that, that gave, that's, that's offering me an interesting extra perspective on that very outrageous uh, event in our history. The second is by a friend of mine from Louisiana days. It's called Kings, Conquerors, and Psychopaths, from (laughs) Alexander to Hitler to the corporation. He's an emergency physician, and he admits that he has a tendency to see things a bit on the negative side, but Uh, all of everything that's in there is fact. And it's it's not a pretty sight, but it's fact. So it's good to know. And because both of those are a bit on the heavy side, at the same (laughs) time, I have going on a book by one of my favorite humorous authors, whose name is Terry Pratchett. And this particular one is called The Last Continent. And if you don't know about Terry Pratchett, you should know about him. And this one is about a continent on what he, what his uh, alternative universe is called disk world. So an alternative continent that's very much like Australia, but different.
0: So I, I feel like I want to ask another question <laughs> before we finish the rapid fires. Yes. Cause you get asked a lot, like, what do you think about the direction that we're going in? You know, and you mentioned this book about the Tulsa race massacre. There's a lot of information coming to light and there's a lot of people trying to make change and be more inclusive and do reparations. So I'm wondering if you might just speak to that briefly. Um, because I know that it's something that is on your heart too. Like you and I both have been doing our, our homework and studying and trying to elevate and listen to black and brown voices and do what we can to give back.
1: The, the thing that of course strikes me the most at the moment is just how threatened so many people are by the truth. Mm. Unless you are still a white supremacist, why should you be threatened to find out more about this race massacre? the only reason you would feel and 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 i'm thinking about this in particular because a couple of weeks ago i got an email from a long-term client and by long-term i mean 15 or 20 years client of mine who is originally from india and who has been living here all this time and it was a it was from a holocaust denying website explaining that in fact the race massacre was entirely the fault of the black people in Tulsa who had accumulated lots and lots of weapons, and the only reason the Greenwood District burned down is because all of their accumulated uh, explosive ex- uh, exploded. Hmm. So, so it's we're at a point where it, I think it's. It seems to me that, that, that it is still extraordinarily crucial that the, the actual history be exposed to as many people as possible. And of course, certain people, like the governor of Texas and the lieutenant governor, are making it very difficult to do that. They're trying to, they're trying to pass laws that say you must not teach anything that offends the sentiments of, of, of anybody. And uh, of course, on the, uh, on the face of it, that, that, that looks good because we can't offend the sentiments of black people or Asians or anyone else. But, but that also makes it difficult for people here in Texas to understand that, for example, one of the important reasons why the, the Texans who were fighting against Mexico at the t- back at the time of the Alamo and San, San Jacinto, back when the Texas Republic was created, the reason why they were doing that was to ensure they were able to maintain slavery in Texas. It was to be independent, but to be independent for the purpose of maintaining slavery. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to walk around feeling like we are under, we're, that guilt is, is burying us in the ground, but we need to be able to acknowledge that this is what was the reality. This is, the, this, this is literal history. And it is no use trying to continue to pretend that that everyone who was involved in just in this one case and setting up the Texas Republic was noble and completely uh, altruistic and interested only in the highest possible uh, uh, objectives when in fact slavery was a big part of that. In the same way that slavery is written into the US constitution you can't then pretend that it was that it is not there I, and and but there's there is a great deal of inertia of Thomas mm. that has to be addressed and i think it's important to remember that It is going to take quite a bit of time for this to extend itself into society as a whole. And I think it's important to remember that this is a marathon that we're running. It's not a sprint. Mm. So it's not like we can do something for five minutes or one year or, uh, and then feel like the job is done. It's like you need to, or everyone needs to, find out what they can do in a sustainable way, given what else, the other responsibilities they have, but at the very least, to educate themselves to what has been happening, what is happening, and the more that we know about what has happened and what is happening, the greater is the possibility that we can avoid having similar things happen in the future. We've just Mm -hmm. ended the war in Afghanistan. The British got kicked out of Afghanistan. The Russians got kicked out of Afghanistan. The Mughals got kicked out. Everybody has got kicked out of (laughs) Afghanistan. If you don't don't read history, then what happens is you go over and think you're going to completely recreate this country that never has allowed anyone to do that. And the only reason you think you can do that is because you have believe in this myth of American exceptionalism. Mm. So America is exceptional in several, in, in many ways. But when it becomes a myth that you then buy into and the myth starts to take on its own momentum and the myth becomes an egregore, then it's not you following reality anymore. It's the myth is dictating to you your perspective on reality, and then you're going to regret it.
0: That feels like we just came full circle from talking about dharma <laughs> earlier.
1: It is definitely, definitely the the we need to examine dharma in all of its aspects very carefully and move very deliberately and very awarely in the direction as best we can of what we've believed to be our own personal dharma, whatever that means, in this extremely bizarre world of today.
0: So on another note, to finish up our rapid fire, what is one thing that brings you joy right now? (laughs)
1: Um, I would say probably all sorts of things, but if I had to select one thing only, one joy-producing thing, it would have to be music and all kinds of different sorts of music, but music in general.
0: Okay. And since I am your media manager, I will tell people they can find you online at drsoboda.com, And then also there's many courses that you have online and those are on drsabota.teachable.com and we'll put those in the show notes. So if you're interested in learning more, there's so many topics that we could have covered today and like we just scratched the surface with Dr. Sabota's knowledge. So I'm really grateful for you, for your time and for being here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.